Thank you, Nate. Appreciate that very much. And can everyone see the new location of the uh, whiteboard reasonably well? Okay, good. I'll try to write bigger. So here we go, off and running, August 15, 2010, lecture discussion number 10. Let me repeat that, number 10 on the book of Romans. And though it uh, may not seem more uh, like Romans today, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a combination today uh, because uh, we have a mid-quarter exam next Sunday. And so today is the mid-quarter exam review. And I say that as kind of a joke, but there are some here who remember I actually passed out a test one Sunday. Actually, it might have been a Wednesday night. I would love it to do it again, not for your sake. Who benefits from knowing what you're doing? Me. I need to know how much of this you're actually assimilating. But this is the mid-quarter exam review, and we're in Genesis again. It won't seem like Romans because we're in Genesis again, specifically Genesis 34, again, because of why. Why am I in Genesis 34, the Dinah incident? What put me there? Circumcision did, that's right. And I got there out of Romans 2, 25 through 29, where Paul, through the Holy Spirit, brings up circumcision. And there's a reason that he put it in that exact spot. And you can imagine that he thought it was the perfect place to put it. But God also directed him to put it there so that it ultimately becomes the absolute perfect place to put circumcision. You should always try to do that when you go through the Bible. By the way, I was trying to get Anna to put up a circumcision kit on the overhead, but we decided against it. But you should sometime, for your own uh, own, uh, research, um, do that. Find out what exactly is entailed in that process in Jewish culture. But anyway, circumcision is placed perfectly in Romans 2.25. You should always try to do that as you go through the Bible. Why is this here? Why did he go from blaspheming Gentiles to circumcision? It made absolute perfect sense to him. Not blaspheming Gentiles, I said that wrongly. He said, because of you, because of the Jews, the Gentiles are blaspheming God. Because of you, God is blasphemed all over the world. That's what he says to the Jews. Then the very next thing he brings up, circumcision, it makes absolute perfect sense. And again, as you begin to go through the Bible, always ask those kinds of questions. Why here? Why is this the place? Why is this what Paul thought? Why is this what the Holy Spirit directed him to write after he puts that particular uh, verse with regard to the Jews causing blasphemy among the Gentiles? Okay, Romans chapter 2 requires that the reader have a basic understanding of circumcision before you get to go to Romans chapter 3. My idea of a basic understanding and your idea of a basic understanding might not be the same. But I'm going to give you the basic understanding. You don't get to go, stop yourself, say, hey, listen, I can't go to Romans chapter 3 until I understand circumcision at the basic or fundamental or at least the elementary level. And just as you couldn't go past Romans 1.17, because Romans 1.17 made you go to where? I can't go to Romans 1.18. i got to stop at Romans 1.17 and go someplace. Where do I have to go? I can't read another verse. Where do I have to go? I have to go to 
Habakkuk, right? Because Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Romans 1.17. So you can't understand Romans 1.18 until you understand why Paul put Habakkuk there in 1.17, right? Romans 1.17 requires Habakkuk 2.4. To say it more correctly, the book of Habakkuk must be understood in order to move past 1.17. 1.17 of Romans is a thesis statement. It's pulled out of Habakkuk. You need to know why. And as you might remember, Romans... the Romans introduces, the beginning of it, introduces the resurrection of Christ. Ultimately, the, uh, the ultimate sign, if you will, of Jonah. The resurrection of Christ is the ultimate sign of Jonah. It is the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah. It also, Romans introduces the seed of David, which is the holy thing. You've heard me say that a lot since Christmas time. I've been pounding that in as best I can. Because the sign of the Davidic covenant is the holy thing. And that the seed of David, the fact that we have a Davidic line that God enters, is, has its own sign. And that sign is the Davidic covenant that will continue forever, the throne of David. And that is the holy thing, or the God and man combining, called the hypostatic union in theology. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Probably not, so okay, stick with me. Also introduced in Romans in the beginning is the issue of mind and body. Um, the interconnection, the intertwining of the supernatural and the physical. That which is material, my body, and that which is immaterial, my spirit, soul, my consciousness, right? That's why I always ask people, ask somebody uh, at softball the other day. I asked them, um, what is the difference between the mind and the body? What are they made out of? What's the mind made out of? What's the body made out of? They're different substances. That's called substance dualism. And they said, well, I don't know. And I said, why don't you know? You should know. Why should you know? I don't know why I should know. You should know because somebody's going to die around you soon. Maybe you. Then you'll know. But somebody else may, in which case you have an opportunity to explain the immaterial and the material. The mind as it controls the physical body. And the brain, the brain part of the physical body. Well, that, of course, sends us to George Berkeley because he wanted to define physical reality. He asked the question, is there any is there such a thing as physical reality? And every time I've asked that question, is there such a thing as physical reality? Everyone always answers yes. And I always tell them, be very slow to answer yes to is there such a thing as physical reality? Because Berkeley pointed out philosophically that reality must be perceived to be existent. So reality, uh, physicality must be perceived. There must, in order for physical things to be re- real, they have to be perceived by someone. Who is perceiving all physical reality? God is. Now, I know that's a lot of philosophy. If he stops perceiving it, what happens to your physical reality? If he ever makes a decision that he doesn't want to perceive... He doesn't want to consciously think about your physical reality. The chair you're sitting in, what happens to your chair? All things consist in his hand. The Bible is very clear. There is no physical reality except inside the mind of God. There is spiritual reality. Someday we'll finish that discussion. But all of that starts out in the book of Romans, right? Understand all of that aforementioned. Then, uh, then once you've got all of that, you can go to chapter 2. 
That's what I'm trying to point out. A lot of stuff in Romans chapter 1. And granted, I'm going to concede that very few actually accomplish any comprehension of that. They nonetheless move on as if they can, but they can't. And I don't want you to move on. I don't want you to limp through the book of Romans unaware of what you have passed by. I want you to know, okay, I've started in the book of Romans. I've got to deal with the holy thing, the hypostatic union. I've got to deal why it's the seed of David. I've got to understand the resurrection of Christ, why there's so much emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. I've got to understand the difference between the mind and the body, the supernatural, and the physical, the immaterial and the material. And what is reality? Is there any reality in the physical world? If Jack Degenstein were here right now, he would stand up and scream at every one of you because he's had to take chemistry and philosophy and yell, none of you exist physically. And he'd sit back down, wouldn't he, Troy? If he were here, I wish he would come. But I have to bring him. I have to give him a ride. We would talk back and forth because he was helping me on that on Mike's house for a while. And he would tell me, you know there's no physical reality, don't you? I'd say, yes, Jack, I know. Physical reality has to be perceived. You know who's perceiving it, don't you, Coach? Yeah, I know, Jack. You're not perceiving it, Coach. I know, Jack. I can perceive just a few things. I have limited perception. Somebody has to perceive everything for it to be real. I got it, Jack. You should say that in church a lot. Okay. He's right about that. All of that is Romans chapter 1. And like I say, most people go read Romans chapter 1. They get to Habakkuk. They don't even know it's there. They go flying on to 118. They get to circumcision. They think they've got that. They have no idea. And on they go. And they have left aside tremendous wisdom, tremendous, powerful treasure that's sitting there. Just walked by it like it was nothing. I always ask people, if <coughs> you would notice thousands and thousands of diamonds on the ground, you'd be picking them all up. But you'll go through the Bible as if it isn't even there. And it's a great tragedy in the church today. Our understanding of what the Bible is saying is, is the smallest in the history of man. The smallest. I can get any book from the 1900s, early 1900s, late 1800s, and bring it up and read it in the church and no one would understand it. We have lost wisdom in this generation. By the way, does the Bible predict that we will lose wisdom in this generation? Yes, it does. Revelation 3.16. I will vomit you out. Okay, but usually, as I said, people just pass it by, and I don't want that for you. I want you to be in the very few that understand that what they're going past. I want you to be the ones that examine, that inspect, that find. I want you to be the seeker of wisdom. And I keep bringing up this verse. We used to put it on the... Uh, uh, well, I can read 25, too. It's right here. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing. But it is the honor of kings to search out a matter. I want you to be the honored kings that search things out in the Bible. God hides things in the Bible. What's the obvious question? Why? Why does he hide things in the Bible? What's the obvious answer? Does he know where they are? Duh. He's God. He perceives. It's outside of time. He knows where they are. Why does he hide them from you? He wants you to find them. Why does he want you to find him? He likes you searching. What's he want you to search for? Him. Why does he want you to search for him? Because it helps you. 
It's all about you, not really. It's really about him. The more you understand about him, the better you are off. Anyway, this is Proverbs 122. I quote it often. How long, you simple-minded, will you love the simple? How long? It is a challenge and a lament. I hope you answer. I hope this group answers. I'm tired of loving the simple. I'm not going to be a simple-minded person anymore. I'm going to study and learn what he has for me. Anyway, on that note, have you solved yet? And I asked it a few weeks ago. I sat down uh, the uh, uh, last evening and prior to that, but mostly last evening, and I reread all my sermons, the first ten. How's that for putting you to sleep? That was tough. I read them all to make sure that I was on track. I do that every now and then. And I, this is the place where I said, lecture number 10, I was going to re-ask this question. How many of you have solved yet the question of Christ's resurrection? How many of you even know what the question is about Christ's resurrection? It is a fundamental. It is foundation. It is a must-know. You must know the question or the resurrection problem, if you will, the resurrection mystery. Romans 1-4, as I said, chapter 1 in Romans declares that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the dead, that is the definitive proof that he is God. That is the one. That is the definitive, absolute proof of his godhood, his deity, the fact that he is in sameness with God. That he is God, the same essence, sameness in essence. When you add 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, you now know that your very salvation rests on the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why when the Jehovah's Witness come to my door, I always go there and I say, do you realize that our very salvation rests on the body resurrection of Christ? And the body resurrection of Christ proves he's God. And they always say to me, yes, we know. We know that. It's true. And they do what? They deny the body resurrection of Christ. If you deny the body resurrection of Christ, you have done what to the doctrine of his deity? You have denied it immediately. And do they know that? Yes, they do. So that's where I always start. You deny the body resurrection of Christ and you deny the godhood, the sameness in essence you deny his deity as well. Is that true? Yes, they will say to me, that's true. We deny it. Okay, now we're honest with one another and we have a place to start. And where do I go next? You will perish in your sins. You must believe I am, John. I think 824. I hope so. You must believe I am, he says. Or you will perish in your sins. You must believe he is the I am. And the body resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the definitive proof, right? So that's the obvious question. Why exactly does his resurrection power have this special declarative status? You would have said, what proves, if I asked most church people, what proves Jesus Christ is God, what do they say to me? Give me the proof, the proof that he's God. Give it to me out of Scripture. What do they say to me? Every time. Hmm? Well, they'll say, he walked on water. He, he healed a blind guy. He uh, made bread. He made fish. He fed lots of people. He spoke in a really loud voice. 
Theologically, he's really smart. He walked through walls. Well, he walked through people, too, by the way. He understands physical reality. How does it that Christ understands physical reality so well? He perceives physical reality. He's the one that consists all things in his hand. It's not hard for him to walk through people. All he has to do is stop thinking of you for an instant. Right on through, right? Oh, is there something I should look at? I haven't got the trumpets yet, have I? That's for the announcements. No. Okay. Anyway. I had a joke for that, but I can't remember what it is now. I was very sad because, as you know, a few days ago I went face first into a ladder that was ten feet on uh, below me. When, so I got to watch myself in slow motion go all the way down and eat the ladder rung through my lip with my teeth. And I, they loosened them all. So I thought, today I'm probably perfectly fine. Actually, yes, was it today or was it last night? No, it was today. All runs together now because of the blow to the head. I said to myself, I can play the trumpet today. I really want to play the trumpet today again. I'd worked my way up to a B-flat above the staff, and so I played the trumpet today. And no, I didn't. I got a couple of notes out. I got to, I, I lost an entire octave, and so I'm very sad. So we put a trumpet thing in today, didn't we? And I had a joke about it, but I have no idea what it is now. So off we go. Com- comedy is hard, even when you plan it. Okay, why does his special, why does his resurrection power have this declarative special status? Why not his miracles? Why not his creative power? Because he does create. He creates all kinds of things. He goes and finds Lazarus's mind and spirit, doesn't he? And brings it back and puts it back together with his body and brings him out. That's, that's extraordinary power. But the resurrection of Lazarus doesn't declare him to be God. It is himself that resurrects. There's something very special about Jesus Christ's resurrection. It is the proof that he is God himself. It is the proof that he is the Lord God Almighty, the creator God of all things, the the creator God of uh, time, space, energy, and matter. Why is that the case? Why is that the one thing that Romans and Corinthians says proves his Godhood? Can you answer that? You have to be able to answer that in order to do what? Go on to Romans 2. Anyway, ponder that for a while while I go back to the other questions that we were at previously. We've been in Genesis 34, Genesis 17, Genesis 3, Exodus 4, Joshua 9, 2 Samuel 21. What are those? Genesis 34 is the Dinah incident. What's the Dinah incident about? It's about one thing, circumcision. Genesis 17 is about what? The Abrahamic covenant, the sign of which is circumcision. Genesis 3 is what? Genesis 3 is where the curse of Adam is. And Adam loses special status. Something goes away from Adam and it goes through all of the world. Exodus 4, 24 through 26 is about what? Circumcision. Joshua 9 is about what? Yeah, one guess. It is. It's about circumcision. You might have said about the Gibeonites fooling the the Israelites, but no, it's really about circumcision, as is 2 Samuel 21, 
where Saul killed the Gibeonites and caused a plague. And it's all about circumcision. Those are your circumcision things. That's what circumcision is, uh, is interwoven with. Specifically, uh, that, uh, what we have learned is all about circumcision in those uh, five or six, those seven places. So, you may remember that I have recently said that you can substitute Christ crucified. Whenever you come across circumcision, you can put Christ crucified. And I've had two or three people ask me now, and so I thought I would repeat it a little bit. Christ crucified circumcision. I didn't. I ran out of room to write. That's poor planning, but I'm trying to write big. I'm saying to you, every time you see circumcision in Scripture, mostly, generally, it's a general statement, you can substitute Christ crucified for it. And someone asked me, would you please go back over that, how you arrive at that? And it's really not that complicated. You'll do it yourself really fast, uh, but it's a good proof to be able to have to yourself so that when you do run into it, you'll be able to do it. So we'll go to 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. There it is. And you can write in the margins, because I see that somebody has done it in this Bible. Wow, he has really nice handwriting. He seems to be quite intelligent. I wonder who it is. But anyway, here we go, 122 through 25. For Jews request a sign. What's the obvious question? What sign do they want? Why do they want a sign? What sign do they want? They want proof that Christ is the Messiah. What sign did he give them? The sign of Jonah. The ultimate sign of Jonah is what? His his resurrection. He gave them absolute proof that he is God with his resurrection. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. We go to the Jews, Paul's saying, and we preach Christ crucified, and it is a stumbling block. To the Jews, a stumbling block. You go to a Jew and you preach Christ crucified, and it's almost like throwing light on Dracula. Is that how you do it? No, is it water on? Is it, who, who dies with the lead bullet? Okay, okay, maybe it's a silver bullet. Okay. How do I get rid of Dracula? Cross? That's how I do it? Stake through the heart? Whack. But i got to catch him sleeping, right? Whatever. To the Jews, you go Christ crucified, they run. They do not want to hear Christ crucified. It is not something, especially at the time of Paul, that they appreciated. It is something that is, it is an anathema. It's a stumbling block to them. They cannot believe that Jesus Christ is God, is the Messiah, because he was crucified. It's a stumbling block, okay? So, if I take my pencil, Christ crucified equals circumcision, and it is a stumbling block. You throw circumcision at a blue uh, at, a, at the Jewish people at the time of Paul, and I even say today, and it knocks them over. They don't want to deal with it. So, where am I headed next? Those of you who are ahead of me, how do I prove Christ crucified equals circumcision? Where do I go in the Bible? It's really pretty easy. I got to go someplace where circumcision is a stumbling block. Where circumcision is bothering somebody. 
That's all I got to do. Where do I go where circumcision is bothering somebody? Moses and Zipporah. See, I really I hope you also recognize this pattern before I get ahead of myself. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. He's contrasting the Jew and the Gentile, right? He did the same thing in Romans. He's doing it here in Corinthians. Professing to be wise, they become fools. He talks about the Gentiles there in Romans 1, 21 and 22. Their foolish hearts are darkened. The Jews are demanding a sign and only the sign of Jonah. As I said, the resurrection would be given to them. That's Matthew 12, 38 and 40. Three days, three nights, resurrection. That's why three days, three nights, 72 hours, resurrection. I know many of you have been taught and taught and taught, especially since about 1925. But prior to 1925, hardly anyone, I would say no one in this country believed that Christ was crucified on Good Friday. No one did. They all knew the sign of Jonah was critical to the resurrection of Christ because the sign of Jonah is fulfilled by Christ. And that 72 hours was absolutely necessary because we all got that. That's why we left England, by the way, because of the sign of Jonah. When I say we, I mean the the Mayflower and the religious people trying to get away from the persecution. That all changed with the Irish potato famine. That is why we have a Good Friday crucifixion time now. And we all know it's not possible, and it's a contrary, by the way, so that you know that, contrary to the sign of Jonah. If you don't understand how it can be easily cast aside, um, come and see me afterwards. But just for, let me get distracted for a second. The Passover prophecy is identical in two places. It's absolutely identical. It's identical in Exodus and it's identical in the Gospels. Okay, what I mean by that is that the pattern by which the Jews left Egypt and the pattern by which Christ was crucified is identically the same. The Jews on the tenth day brought in a lamb. They kept it for four days. On the fourteenth day at three o'clock they kill it. And then they left on the 15th day, which is unleavened bread. They traveled to the Red Sea, uh, 16th, oops, 17th, and they crossed on first fruits, which is the 18th. Christ did the same thing. Entered Jerusalem on the 10th. At 3 o'clock on the 14th, he declared himself to be the Passover lamb and said it is finished just at the exact same time that the high priest cut the throat of the lamb on the 14th. The 15th, he was entombed. That's unleavened bread. The 16th and the 17th, what did I got? I got... 72 hours, three days, three nights. On the 18th, he rose on first fruits the same day the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Pattern is identical. So the obvious question is, is how many days does it take two and a half million people to go 150 miles? That solves your Good Friday crucifixion problem. Okay, did I do that fast enough for you? Everybody got that. Prior to the Irish potato farm famine. Okay. Only one sign of Christ crucified would be preached. Sign of Jonah. The one only true sign. Christ resurrected. And to the Jews it is a stumbling block. They cannot accept Christ crucified. So that sends us back to Exodus 4, 24 through 26. Where we read a couple of weeks ago. Zipporah is unwilling to do something. She won't do it. What is it that she won't do? 
She won't circumcise the sons of Moses. And God intervenes and she is forced to do it. And her famous statement to Moses, you are a husband of blood because of circumcision. Now, Israel has been saying to God, you are a husband of blood for thousands of years. Is God a husband of blood to Israel? Absolutely he is. What's he make them do? They haven't been able to do it since Romans destroyed the temple 70 A.D. But what did he make them do prior to that? He filled that city up with blood over and over and over again. They had ditches filled with blood running out of the city because of what? The sacrificial system, he forced them to constantly sacrifice. He filled troughs up with blood. They were soaked in blood. The priests were soaked in blood. It was blood, 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 and more blood. And who is the husband of Israel? Where was the marriage? It was at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. That is a marriage ceremony. They were married. Two witnesses brought the bride, Israel, up to be married. There was vows. Who were the two witnesses? Moses and Aaron. Where are the vows? Whatever you say, we will do. That's what they said. Two witnesses, vows. Eventually, what happens to the wife of YHVH, the ineffable, unpronounceable name of God? What happens to the wife of God? What does she do? She commits adultery, and I have a bill of separation. I have a bill of divorcement, and I have an actual legal divorce in Scripture with regard to Israel. And and God has divorced them, but he plans to bring his wife back. It's called the wife of YHVH. (coughs) You might say Jehovah or Yahweh, that's what it comes from, but it's unpronounceable, ineffable. But anyway, Zipporah will not. She's in this place where she says, you are a husband of blood because of this stumbling block. I won't do it. You are a husband of blood because of Christ crucified. You are a husband of blood because of circumcision. And she screams that at Moses, who is an extraordinary type of Christ. So Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. Circumcision is a husband of blood to Zipporah, the wife of Moses. So you can see Zipporah in the Israel position there, Moses in the Christ position. And there's your typology that is screaming at you in that particular story. And it is all about the stumbling block of Christ crucified. Being equal to circumcision. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant of promise and grace. Salvation by grace. The just shall live by faith. That's circumcision. Circumcision equals grace. And then it's simple transitive property from there. What's transitive property? If A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. Right? You do the math. You can figure it out. I gave you all the pieces. I did everything but finish it for you, didn't I? All you have to do is finish it. Why don't I finish it for you? You'll never do it. How many of you will do it? One percent. Who are the one percent? Years of teaching has made it very clear to me that in order for something to be learned, 
the student has got to at least write out the problem. Every math class I ever had, I said, open up your books. There's your first problem. It's problem number one. Everybody get out your piece of paper and write out the problem. Write out the problem onto your piece of paper. And they'd all say to me the same thing. What would they say? They'd say, Coach, it's in the book. Why do I got to write it out, man? And please, can you make sure I'm eligible? Pretty much all I got. And I'd say, I know you're not going to do the problem. I know you're not going to think about the problem. I know you're not going to work the problem. So I'm going to make you write the problem. So what? You'll know there is a problem. And you are the problem. Now you're going to have a bigger problem. But I'd make them at least write it out. That's why us math teachers do that. You at least write out the problem. It internalizes the problem. That's a good thing. I've given you the problem of what is circumcision. How does it work? You've got all the pieces. You can put them all together and you can solve it. It's the old Bud Wilkinson quote about football. I've used it quite a few times. He was a national champion two years in a row in the 40s. Um, I think he was Oklahoma, 1948-49. I might have that wrong. Or they asked him what, they, what he thought about the big game. And he said, what do you mean? What do I think about the big game? Well, the biggest game ever for this is the history of football, 1948-49. He said, well, what I think is that I got uh, 22 guys on the field that are desperately in need of a break, rest, 75,000 people in the stands that are desperately in need of exercise. That's what I think. That's what I'm doing here. I don't need to work the problem. I need you to work the problem. And that's why I want to test you. Why? So I can find out who's working the problem. Then I can do what? Yes, that's right. Move them to the front row and give them cookies. Make them special. Make the rest of you hate them. That's what we do in teaching. It's called social engineering. Okay. Um, someday I'll tell you about EC 101. How much time I got? I'll, I'll tempt you with this. EC 101. I'm sitting in my sixth grade class, Mrs. McLean. And the loudspeaker comes over and it's the principal. Would the following students please come to EC 101? And they read off Kurt Lund. And I went, oh, he's in trouble. That kid's trouble. Virgil Miller. Ah, he's in a lot of trouble. That kid, they're going to kick him out and they should kick him out. He's brutal. Steve Gronister. Uh-oh. <laughs> this ain't good. These are three problem kids. And the fourth one was Eric Horn. And the three of us looked at each other and went, Eric Horn? We're not in any trouble. We got it made. Another kid named Kalstrom, I can't remember his name. We're going, we're going to get a prize or something. Because these guys are great guys. We're problems. We went down to EC 101 where Joe Hickel was in that class. And uh, 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 can't remember the kid's name. I can almost remember all of them. But, you know, here's Wally Hickel's son. The governor's son is in this class. So we're thinking, they pulled us out and they put us in an all-male class of fifth and sixth graders taught by Mrs. Motter, who probably was the meanest woman that has ever existed. And that where they were experimenting on us. That's what EC meant. Experimental Classroom 101. And so I went to, they didn't ask our parents in those days. They, they, you know, they just grabbed us and put us in there. And then they kept track of us. And every now and then to see how we did. And so when they'd call me, 
throughout the years, I would say, well, I, I was talking to my attorney about you guys the other day. That's kind of a joke. But uh, it's been fascinating to see what happened to every one of us that they experimented on. And it made me a teacher that did what? Oh, who's embarrassed by him? <laughs> yes, look at the one wife with her head down. Just absolutely miserable. What happened? I don't know. Anyway, the funny thing is, is that I knew all along that someday I would get even with the Anchorage School District, and I have. They're out there, little time bombs that I had access to. Okay. What else do we know about circumcision besides Christ crucified and how to prove that? It's a reference. It is a referral back to the two decisions of Adam. Very important. You understand that it all refers back to Genesis 3, the two decisions of Adam, as opposed to the one decision of Eve. Someday I'll tell you the rest of the story about EC 101. It's fascinating to me, at least. It is a reference back to Adam and his two decisions, as opposed to the one decision of Eve. I've said to many people here recently, Eve made a decision and it affected only her. Adam makes two decisions and they affect everything. Everything is affected. The difference between the consequences of Adam's sin and Eve's sin, and I've covered it many times, but it still can be confusing. Circumcision, to, to sum it up with regard to Adam, circumcision is a statement. It is an admittance. It is a confession of a basic truth. Okay? It is saying that mankind is corrupted and that mankind cannot produce in any possibility, a substitutionary sacrifice that God will accept. Mankind has contaminated blood and contaminated flesh, and we cannot therefore come up with a sacrifice that God will accept out of humanity. So mankind, no seed of man can be offered up to God that he'll accept. To attempt to offer one up to God is complete, absolute, perfect stupidity. It's perfect. Man cannot. It is impossible for man to save himself or save another. That is why circumcision has an Adamic, if you will, relationship. That is why it is used in, in the Abrahamic covenant to say that. So that Abraham would understand it. And that, by the way, is going to bring up Genesis 17, 18, because Abraham does something very stupid. He says, I do not want the promised son... Who is the promised son? I do not want the promised son. Instead, and who is the promised son? That's Jesus Christ, of whom Isaac is a type. I do not want the promised son. Remember, the father Abraham takes Isaac up the very mountain that Christ himself is crucified on and is going to sacrifice him there on the very spot that Christ chooses to be crucified on. Very mountain, very spot, same spot Goliath's skull is buried. Right? Got all that? Isaac, type of Christ, on the same mountain, taken by the Father, to be sacrificed. Abraham knew something would happen. If Isaac was killed, what would happen? He knew it. It says so. If he kills Isaac, what's God going to do? Resurrect him. Abraham had that worked out. Read the text, you'll see. But anyway, point is, Abraham says to God, don't, I don't want Isaac, I don't want a promised son. Take the son of my flesh. 
And God says what? Read the text. What's he say? He says something. Most texts don't do it right. But he says it. He says, no. No, I will not take the son of your flesh because I have the contamination of the entire human race. That includes your son. The promised son can only be me adding humanity. Abraham offers up Ishmael there and God says immediately, no. There will be a son of promise, the son of promise. You can't do it. Humanity can't do it. Salvation has to be given. It is grace. The substitutionary sacrifice must be God himself. And with perfect sinless blood and flesh. This is the hypostatic union. God adding humanity. The God man, right? That's going to solve the death problem, which I've said many times is a medical procedure. You all have, you all need a transfusion. Your blood is contaminated. I've got to get your blood out and I've got to put living blood in. You have dead blood. I don't have to do it, but it has to be done for you to live. I can't do it, right? We have contaminated dying blood. God's got to get the blood out and where's he going to get uncontaminated blood? He's the only source. How does he get it? He also has the legal problem, right? He has to have atonement. That requires a human to atone for humans. So I have the medical procedure where I need new blood and new flesh, and I have the legal atonement. So circumcision is the symbol, is the sign that there's an outward acknowledgement that mankind is contaminated and cannot produce a Savior. Only God can, and God must give it. So that's what circumcision is the sign of. Because the first Adam's first decision was to join Eve in sin. That's what he did. I haven't explained that very well because I had a question about it last week and I didn't get it solved for them. Before that. I think they've left town. So I called the folks that they were staying with and I said, I think I figured out what they were trying to say to me and I'll cover it this week and they won't be here, but you tell them. Adam's first decision is to join Eve in sin. She's in sin. She's dying. She's got the poison. She took it. She's dying. He joins her in sin. He chooses to leave the presence of God and join the fallen bride in sin. And I hope you can see the typological portion. He's called. Adam is called a type of Christ in Romans. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Okay, months. Okay, sometime next year. It's in Romans 5. It's a long way away. It's three chapters. It's at least a year. Six months. Tops. But when he did that, when Adam made that decision, he caused all of the world to also be in death and sin. And did he know it when he did that, made that decision? Did he know that when he joins his fallen bride in sin, he's going to collapse the entire world? Does he know that? Yes, he does. Adam knows that. He was the federal head, and he knew what would happen. Adam was not deceived. 1 Timothy 2.14. The woman was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Now, notice how many times I've said Adam deliberately chose to join, to unite with the woman in sin, to stand alongside her in sin. Contrast that with Christ's decision. He's called the last Adam or the second Adam. There's only been two federal heads of all of humanity. One was the first Adam. The second is the last Adam, Jesus Christ. He's the other federal head. He doesn't join us in sin, does he? He does what instead? 
He provides his blood and his flesh. He sacrifices himself. He takes upon our sin. He takes upon the sin of the fallen. He stands in front of the bride, not alongside of her. Adam chose not to sacrifice himself, but that is a big question. Why didn't Adam die for Eve? Because God came back. He could say, I've got the woman. I got her duct taped and in a little place here waiting. Because if I don't do that, she's going to go to the second tree, and i got to stop her from doing that. i got her over here. She can't do it. I've been waiting for you. Kill me. Take my blood. Take my flesh. Sacrifice me so she can live. Why didn't he do that? That's what Christ did. Very important question. He didn't do it. His was a sin. It was a choice. First commandment breaking, by the way. Adam chose not to sacrifice himself, but to sin also. And God corrects, if you will, repairs this decision. Adam, however, his second decision, he does not go to the second tree, and he does not allow Eve to go to the second tree, and God then drives them out of the garden to protect them. There's your Genesis story, right? The other obvious question is, how did he know that? Well, he's very smart. Because he doesn't do that, he's honored in Scripture, Adam is, in case you think he's some dummy. God honors him in Scripture. We only, I only wish we could ever understand how smart Adam was. Anybody who will tell you that Adam is a fool has no understanding of that story in Scripture. Throw chairs at them and run. Okay, take the chair with you. Let's get something out of that, church. Anyway, circumcision is a symbol of understanding the federal headship of Adam and how it is impossible for a seed that is under his federal headship to provide salvation. Man cannot produce a Savior. God must be the Savior. Okay, so there's your other thing you now know about circumcision, right? What do you know about circumcision? You know it's Christ crucified. Okay. You know it has something to do with Adam. You know a little bit about maybe why it's Christ crucified in a stumbling block, because it's what? Circumcision is the sign of what? What is a stumbling block to the Jewish faith? Salvation by grace. Circumcision is the symbol of the covenant of salvation by grace. Is that fit together? That's what, so you, you, hopefully you've got those pieces. What else do you know about circumcision? We've got two minutes. Well, you know, the Genesis 34, the Dinah incident, right? We know that killing circumcised Hivite Gibeonites who are incapacitated from the circumcision process, as you know, I think they were deliberately infected. The killing of those circumcised, uh, circumcised Gibeonites, that makes the fledgling nation of Israel a stench to the Gentiles. And note Romans 2.24 as a complement to Genesis 34.30. J, uh, Isaac, I'm sorry. Jacob says that he is a stench because of what you've done. You've killed men who, who became circumcised. And, and Paul says in Romans, you have, he, he, the Jews, because they have denied salvation by grace, have made God blasphemed by the Gentiles. So we have the stench of Israel to the Gentiles and, and put those together. Note also that because the nation of Israel has perverted and defamed God's symbol, in Genesis 34, God's sign of the covenant of promise, blessing, and grace. The Gentile nations gather together to surround uh, the sons of Jacob and to kill them all. 
That's exactly what happens with Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, the Babylonians are surrounding Israel because they refuse to talk about salvation by grace. They, they deny salvation by grace. And that's why God says the just shall live by faith. That's why you're having this problem, Israel, because you will not tell the truth that the just shall live by faith because we cannot, humanity cannot produce salvation. Only God can. That's why we have circumcision. Because that's evidence that you understand that when you circumcise yourself as a Jew. It is evidence. Every Jew that you'll ever meet is circumcised. And every Jew is therefore saying that they acknowledge that there's no possibility that salvation can come to any other way than by grace. And yet none of them believe salvation is by grace. How bad off are we? It's blinking. And Shechem, the rapist, I think serial killer, rapist, kidnapper of Dinah. What's the Bible call him? Honorable. Wow. Why would the Bible call him more honorable? Why is the rapist serial killer who rapes Dinah, she's still alive, he doesn't kill her, I think probably the only one he didn't kill. Because there's a big change in his behavior, shocks his community. But he's called honorable. You know why he's called honorable? Genesis 34 19. Because he didn't delay to do something. Did not delay He rushed to do something. What was it? To be circumcised. I want to be the first one circumcision. God calls him honorable. The rapist killer. Rushed to acknowledge the meaning of the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and is called honorable. Did he understand it? Did he understand Adam, federal headship, corruption, the seed? Grace, did he get all of that? Did he get Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17? Did he, he get Christ crucified? Does he understand all that? I doubt it. But he didn't delay. And what did the Jews do? They used the sign of the Abrahamic covenant to do what? To kill and murder every male. And they, went, and they stole all their stuff and they, and they grabbed them all, kidnapped them. That's what the Jews did, using circumcision to do that. And now you understand why Paul put it where he did in Romans 2.17. Obvious question. Let's go through these and then we'll be done. How many people survived the massacre of Genesis 34? A bunch of women, and, a bunch of women survived because the Jews took them. Where did the Jews take them? Who else survived it? The people that weren't in the village at the time of the massacre. They survived it. What did the people who survived the massacre do when they found everybody massacred? And by the way, the Jews, when they came in, Levi and Simeon and the brothers, when they came in, who did they kill? Every male. What's the obvious question? How old were they? They came in and slaughtered the male children. Every one of them. And they killed every male who had rushed, who had volunteered for salvation by grace. Volunteered for circumcision. They slaughtered them all. How are they doing as evangelists today? Not so good. Come forward, be baptized, and then we'll hang you. After we kill your children, all the male children. That's what they're doing. 
God is not pleased. But who survived it? And then, they're the Gibeonites of Joshua 9 and of 2 Samuel 21. Did the ones who survive it continue to honor the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Here's the question I always ask about this. You come in, find out circumcision is used to kill every one of the males in your village. And I don't know, hundreds of them. Do you become circumcised? Do you honor that sign? What's the evidence that they did? They become the Gibeonites. God loves the Gibeonites. They have a place of great honor in Scripture. They're the wisest in all of Scripture, the Gibeonites. How do they get like that? You're a Gibeonite. Your family been massacred. You're a male. What are you going to do? Your sisters are all gone. Your stuff is all gone. You got a small group of people tricked using circumcision to kill a whole bunch of people. And how hard are they to track? They got all your goats and your chickens and your stuff. How hard are they to track? There's not very many of them either. Maybe a hundred. Can you track them? You going to track them? They got your family. What do you do? You go get everybody else to help you track them because you're going to hunt them down and slaughter them like they slaughtered your family, aren't you? This is page 357 of the negotiation table, right? Resolution conflict. Page 30-odd six. I'm going. I'm going to take them out. But they didn't. Why not? God sent error and scared them. And that's where we pick up the... And by the way, did they rescue any of them? Some get away? Logically, they did. What was the testimony of the ones that got away? How did Dinah feel about this? Remember how Dinah starts out? She goes in, she wants to visit her friends in, in the village, right? Just wants to visit her friends. What happened to her friends? Family slaughtered them, unless they were female. Then they kidnapped them. How's she feeling about this? How'd this work out for Dinah? What's she doing? What's she think? What's the father think? You have made me a stench. What did he do with all these people that his sons had brought back? What did he do with them? Keep them? He's got all this stuff. Does he want it? He decides he's got to go someplace. He's in big trouble. He is going to be destroyed. He should be destroyed. God is very upset at him. And he takes on this problem and he goes someplace. Where does he go? He takes his whole group someplace. Where does he take them? Do you know? Takes them to Bethel. You ever been to Bethel? I put a sewer line in in Bethel as a young man. He takes them to Bethel, not that Bethel. Same name, different place. Where's Bethel? Bethel is the place where Jacob's ladder is, or was, where he had that vision. The ascending and the descending. He takes all those people, all his kids, 
and he goes to Bethel because his family stinks and God is blaspheming and he's got to fix it any way he can. He's got all these people with him. What's he do with them? I think I know what he did with them because I know who they are. They're the Gibeonites. They do some amazing things. And it's all about circumcision. They like circumcision. Let's rise and be dismissed.